Okay, well, um, tonight we are looking at uh, how to read and interpret biblical poetry. And um, just as a, uh, I guess a kind of forewarning, the, the genres that we are getting into now um, have a lot more, if you will, um, overlap. Um, so for example, one of the things that we'll look at is uh, how to interpret prophecy and uh, how to interpret uh, apocalyptic uh, literature. Uh, but of course, much of uh, prophecy is written in poetry and has apocalyptic language. So there's, there's going to be overlap in these, uh, these coming genres that we uh, look at. Um, but we're going to try and have sort of a, a, a narrow focus on poetry tonight, and over the course of um, the, the coming weeks, we'll sort of unpack some of these other aspects that involve poetry as well. Again, one of the things I've mentioned is, is also the presence of typology and how you have uh, patterns of events that are uh, presented as the type of thing that's going to happen in the future, that also is conveyed through poetic uh, language, through, through poetry. All right, so we can't get into all of the different aspects that we'll see uh, in poetry tonight, but we'll sort of look at sort of a broad overview. Um, so just by way of a, a brief recap, some of the, the recent things that we've seen so far, of course we've gone over uh, the epistles, and uh, we saw there they've got a, a certain form uh, standard form of letter writing that's, uh, that's in the first century. Uh, of course, within the epistles, um, you know, the, the authors are, are making arguments. Um, they, they have very tight reasoning. You know, there's a, there's a logical explanation of, of things that they are trying to convey. There are um, specific people they are addressing, right? It's occasional. All these letters are addressing particular issues at a particular time, and we have to understand what those issues were in the original context before we can make application to uh, modern situations uh, now. Uh, we looked as well at uh, narratives and saw some of the key features uh, involved with narratives, but sort of the, the, the basic point, the big idea is that um, narratives are not only um, teaching historical facts, right, things that have happened in the past, that is an aspect, that is one of the things that they are doing, but the narrative stories are also presenting a theological message through its presentation of history. And uh, so, you know, one, one um, example we looked at was just how the book of Judges is written, right? It's not just sort of these uh, random stories that are put together as just events that happened in the history of Israel. There's a message that's being conveyed through all of the events and, and, and narrative uh, stories that are being told that's communicating the message of the downward spiral of Israel. The, 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 they enter into the land, and the, the longer they're in there, the more they're 
uh, still surrounded by the Canaanite peoples, the more they're just sinking into their, their depravity until finally you get to the end of the book and they are, they're Sodom and Gomorrah. They're, they're even worse uh, than the Canaanite peoples uh, were. Right? So these, these narratives have particular emphases that they are communicating uh, through the stories that are told. Uh, like I said, though, tonight we're looking at the subject of biblical poetry. Now, this is, um, this is one of those genres that uh, for you know, the average person is, is already foreign territory because uh, not a lot of people read poetry anymore, you know, just English poetry. Uh, and of course, I mean, you read English poetry. If you, if you were to read, you know, some English poetry now, having not read any for, you know, maybe since you were in high school or something like that, you're probably going to have time just interpreting the English poetry that you're reading, right? Um, the other thing, too, is that, you know, usually when we think of, uh, you know, poetry uh, now, there's a variety of different, you know, forms of poetry, but, you know, we, we often think of, like, rhymes, you know, English poetry, maybe use a lot of, uh, you know, rhymes and things like that, and that's just, that's not one of the distinguishing marks of, of Hebrew poetry. Uh, there are occasions where there are word plays that, you know, have similar sounds. There's somewhat of a rhyme, but that's just not how Hebrew poetry uh, works. Um, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew poetry um, it functions in a, in a variety of ways, but if we want to, of course, uh, read Scripture correctly, we need to understand its form and, uh, and how, it, how it works, what, what also um, it, the authors are trying to convey um, through the use of poetry. And uh, so what I want to look at uh, tonight um, are a couple of things. One... I want to look at just some of the reasons why biblical poetry is used. And, and then second, some of the different forms of biblical poetry and, and what they mean. So um, there's two main reasons um, why a, an author will use a biblical poetry. Um, one is that poetry can make a writer's words more memorable. Um, Israel was not exclusively, but largely an, an oral society. Now, I, I want to, to clarify, I think sometimes, um, sometimes scholars make it seem like basically nobody could read in Israel except for, you know, maybe the priest, and, and that's about it. Um, I do think there was a, a little bit more literacy um, among the Israelite people, probably more so than you would have had among the Canaanites because of the emphasis on the word, right? Uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, it's not as if, you know, you're... Your, uh, your average Israelite's going to have a uh, books a million down the road and, you know, you can just, uh, you know, go and purchase a copy of the Bible, right? E even that would be um, pretty expensive. So you, you would be dependent on, um, uh, on the priest and Levites to teach, um, things like that. But one of the things, one of the uses, if you will, for poetry is to um, 
drive home the points in someone's uh, memory. Um, so um, often what an author will do is use very colorful imagery in order to impress a point on the mind. So for example, in Habakkuk chapter 3, and uh, verses 17 to 18, the very end of the book of Habakkuk, all of Habakkuk is written in poetry. We read this, it says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a poetic section at the end of Habakkuk that even in English, you know, it sounds pleasant to the ear. But, I mean, you know, the, the, the author, Habakkuk, he's, he's painting a picture, you know, if, if, if I'm living in the land. And, of course, this is in the context of, you know, a whole book that's been describing this coming judgment by the, the Babylonians. Um, and Habakkuk is, is painting this picture of, of living in a, a land now that's, that's barren. Um, it's, it's under a curse. Uh, the, 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 the land is not producing the fruit uh, anymore. Uh, the animals are suffering. It's a, it's a barren wasteland. And yet in the midst of this, he's, he's still going to trust in the Lord. Right? So, so, you know, part of the function there is to paint this image of being in a kind of wilderness, you know, like, like Israel was after the, after the exodus, and having to continue to trust in the Lord, even though you, you look around and it seems like nothing's there. Right? Um, so, so they will use, again, this, these, these colorful uh, images to paint this picture in our mind to impress a point. And, and here in Habakkuk, it's the the emphasis on continuing to trust in the Lord and rejoicing in him in all situations. Uh, you can think as well, um, another example I just um, grabbed was Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where Isaiah says there, come now, let us reason together. And of course, this is God speaking to his people through Isaiah. Uh, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Right? Now, obviously, that's not literal. Right? It, it's not as if you know you've got sins that you know every time you sin, there's some you know red paint that gets you know splattered on you, and the Lord just has to you know clean it up like that. Right? There's a there's a picture that's being communicated of of how how bad sin is. I mean, it is like a stain that that can't be removed, and yet how gracious. God will be to the sinner who turns from his sin. Right? He, will, he will wash them, make them white as snow. And, and, and I'm sure, I don't, I don't know if any of you are like this, but it's like every time I see snow, like this is a verse that comes to mind, you know? So this is one of those things where like even, even as you, you live in the world and you have these, these verses on your mind, the creation itself bears witness to these, these truths, right? And that's, that's one of the points of poetry is to impress these images on your mind. And here in this case of the Lord's goodness uh, to the sinner, if they will turn. 
another thing um, that poetry does in order to impress things on the mind is to use lots of repetition. Uh, again, repetition helps to, um, uh, uh, to, to impress something on the mind. It helps with memorization. And of course, uh, one of the key features that we'll look at at uh, biblical poetry is the use of parallelism. Uh, so again, I mean, you see this just in your copies of scripture, how poetry is sort of, uh, you know, formatted in a different way to, to indicate that you're, you're reading poetry, but one of the things that you'll, you know, you often see is like these, these parallel lines, right? You'll, you'll have like one line and then the next one's, you know, indented a little bit differently under that and the next one under that. And that's because what the, um, what the translators, what the editors of our English Bibles are doing is helping you to see the parallelism, right? Um, and oftentimes, again, as we'll see in, in just a moment, these, this use of parallelism these parallel lines are making the same point, but maybe in different angles, right? And so you're just, you're, you're, you're hearing the same thing repeated, and it helps you to uh, remember uh, what you have heard. Um, also, um, sometimes uh, the, the writers will use poetic features like acrostics, right? Where you, um, you basically take, um, you know, the first letter of, you know, in this case, the Hebrew alphabet, and every single line um, follows the ABCs, right? You know, so if we're doing this in, in English, you know, verse one would start with some A word, and verse two with some B word, and then a C word, and um, the book of Lamentations is one big acrostic. There's, there's, there's uh, about, you know, five chapters in there, and each chapter has some sort of either an acrostic um, that follows the Hebrew alphabet, or it has, um, you know, 22 verses that lines up with the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and again, the point of that is memorization. It helps you, helps that, that original um, hearer especially to be able to, to recite from memory those, those texts, because they're, they're memory aids. You, you know, you learn that first one, it's going to start with the A and and then the next one's going to start with a B, and so on and so forth. So again, one of the uses for, uh, of, of poetry is to um, impress certain truths on our minds to help with the uh, memorization process. Um, another use for poetry is to evoke strong emotions. Um, God does want us to feel. There is nothing wrong with feelings, nothing wrong with emotions. Um, the, the problem that we, especially in our, our modern society, that we often have to push back against is allowing feelings and emotions to dictate what is true. Right? So all of, our, all of our emotions always need to be in check with the words of scripture but that is not saying that the lord doesn't want us to feel right? we are not supposed to be a people who are who are stoics and have no grief no anger or anything like that we have emotions and we're supposed to feel them and what poetry helps us to do is to feel rightly about the things of god 
we should be appalled at the things that are appalling in the eyes of God. And we should love the things that God loves. And poetry helps us to feel rightly about these things. Um, in order to accomplish this, poetry will often employ things like hyperbole and various images to evoke certain feelings within us. Um, so turn with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 13, and I'll, I'll show you an example of this. Isaiah chapter 13. We'll look at a couple of examples here. Isaiah 13. And of course, these are, these are in addition to uh, the, the couple that we, we looked at just a moment ago. I mean, you, you can think about even the, the poem at the end of Habakkuk. I mean, that, that makes you feel a certain way, right? You're, you're in a barren wasteland, and yet you, you still have to rejoice. You know, and you, you are going to rejoice in the Lord. But here in, in Isaiah 13, I want to look at this passage and, and another passage in Jeremiah. Both of these are judgment passages. And, uh, of course, Isaiah 13, you know, in all of the uh, eschatological talks gets a lot of attention um, as to exactly uh, what's going on here. Um, in the context of chapter 13, Isaiah is pronouncing a judgment against the nation of Babylon. Um, this is in the context of Isaiah where where there's a, there's, there are multiple nations um, who are hearing woes against them. There are curses that are being pronounced against them. And here in chapter 13, um, Babylon is the main target. Though, having said that, and, and again, we'll, we'll look at this in more detail when we look at the prophecy and, and typology, um, I would argue it's not exclusively Babylon. Um, one of the things that you often see um, the prophets doing is they will pronounce these universal judgments against the world, and then that, that sort of worldwide judgment gets um, played out on one particular nation as a foreshadowing of what is to come. Um, there's, a, there's a great example of this, in, in, in fact, in Isaiah 34, um, where you know, the Lord is, is summoning the whole world uh, to, to he, he's, he's calling them to an account. And uh, he's, he's, he's telling the whole world, all the nations, that they are under his harem, his, his ban. Um, he's devoted them to destruction, just like the Canaanites were devoted to destruction when the Israelites came into the land of Canaan. So there's this universal judgment that's being announced and, and then it's as if uh, the Lord describes, he's taken this, this judgment and he's, uh, he's dipped his sword in the heavens in blood and now he's pouring it out upon one particular nation and that's the nation of, of Edom. They serve as an example of what's coming upon uh, the world. So the prophets can, can often do things like that. They are they're basically... Um, pronouncing a judgment against a particular nation that will fall upon the whole world, if that makes sense. But we see this taking place in, in chapter 13. Uh, Babylon is the target of this judgment. And you'll notice in um, verses 9 to 10, notice the language here. It says, behold, 
the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Now just just think about that for a moment. If the sun rises, by its very nature, it has light. But here it's, the, the picture that's being painted, right, is that the sun, this judgment is so bad that the sun's not going to shine anymore. The moon's not going to shine anymore. The stars aren't going to shine anymore. This judgment is going to be like a cosmic destruction that falls upon one nation. And you're supposed to feel the dramatic nature of this, right? This is... Um, this is, this is earth-shattering uh, sort of language. Uh, but again, it's, it's not, uh, we, we shouldn't be looking at this and, and taking it literally as if when Babylon was destroyed, there was this moment in time that took place where the sun somehow stopped being the sun, right? And all of its, you know, fiery radiance and lava just sort of, imploded and it stopped shining no no this is this is imagery right it's painting a picture of cosmic destruction falling upon babylon right the point is that this judgment is coming and it's going to be so devastating that it's like the whole universe is imploding you see something similar to this in jeremiah chapter 4 Four as well. Jeremiah chapter 4, and uh, we'll read from verses 23 to 26. And here, Jeremiah is describing the judgment that is about to fall on Jerusalem, how the city of God is going to be destroyed. And notice what he says, beginning in verse 23 to 26. He says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. That language should be familiar to you from the creation account. It was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold... There was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Now, Jeremiah is basically taking all of the language of Genesis 1, and He's describing this coming judgment against Jerusalem as if it's this decreation event, right? So the world begins formless and void. It's chaotic. There's, there's nothing that can live on in, on, you know, in the world as it existed in the very 
beginning. It needed to be formed and shaped and populated and, and the Lord, you know, was going to give, you know, the plants and, and the animals and the birds of the air and things like that, right? Well, well here, it's, it's like Jerusalem is about to go backwards, right? Um, the, 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 the whole cosmic structure of the world is, is going to go in reverse, um, Whereas man, uh, excuse me, God had created man and placed him, you know, on the earth in the creation account. Here, there's no more men. They're all wiped out. Um, whereas he, he had um, given birds uh, to fly, you know, in the air in the, in the very beginning. Here, they're gone. Um, in his creation, right, he gives the vegetation from the ground. And here, now, it's, it's gone. It, it's a complete reversal of the creation account. And again, the point is that this judgment that is coming upon Jerusalem is going to be so devastating, it's like the whole world is coming to an end. And you're supposed to feel that, right? That's how bad things are about to be. And so again, one of the things that poets do um, is they will use hyperbole, they will use um, imagery, biblical imagery, to evoke a certain sense, a, a feeling of either the devastation of judgments that are to come or the glories of the promises that the Lord is, is going to give to his people. But we need to understand that many of these poetic images, um, again, like this Jeremiah passage, are not meant to be taken literally. And an, an obvious example in, in the destruction of Jerusalem there is that the, the world continued on, right? Uh, we didn't go back to a literal state of the world being formless and, and void, right? Jerusalem was wiped out. The people were taken into exile, and they lived there. And God told them to plant vineyards there, right? They're going to live there. But as far as Jerusalem, it's destroyed. Right? So again, sometimes this, this uh, we just have to recognize some of this imagery is not always meant to be taken literally. Poetry, by its very nature, is going to use more hyperbole and more imagery. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that all poetry is all metaphor and all hyperbole. Of course, poets can often speak very literally, you know, with their, uh, with their poetry. Um, I mean, you know, you can just think of uh, when we looked at uh, Psalm 1, you know, the wicked will perish. Well, that's really going to happen. You know, <laughs> there's, there's no need for an explanation of that. It's just a statement. You know, so poetry can be very literal as well, but you just have to recognize that it's, it's going to have a, um, uh, a tendency to, to use a lot more metaphors, imagery, uh, in, uh, and things like that. Now, um, I said earlier there are different forms of, of poetry, and I want to look at that uh, next. Um, part of reading poetry rightly is not just understanding its purposes, what these authors are trying to communicate through uh, their words, but, but you need to understand something of the form, which, which is um, 
which is what is unique about the Hebrew poetry in particular. And what defines um, biblical poetry is the use, as I said earlier, of parallelism or, or repetition. Um, now, parallelism refers to the practice of writing two or more parallel lines or verses that repeat or clarify some statement. Um, there are a variety of types of parallelism in the Bible, and, and uh, that's what we'll, um, we'll look at next, but we'll finish with, with this. So, just the different forms of parallelism that we find um, within Scripture. One, one form is what's called synonymous parallelism. Synonymous parallelism. This is probably the most common form of um, parallelism that you find in Scripture. And basically, it's characterized by two poetic lines that are either that are similar or identical in meaning. Um, the first line, if it's a little obscure, is then explained by uh, the second line. So, um, just to give you some examples here, um, in Psalm 52, Psalm 52 and uh, verse 8, um, we have an example of synonymous parallelism. And uh, the psalmist says here, he says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Right? Now, the first line, I am like a green olive tree, could be open to interpretation. Right? Well, what, what does that mean? Right? Obviously, he's not He's not saying he's literally a, a green um, olive tree, but, you know, green olive trees were just sort of recognized as beautiful trees. They were fruitful uh, trees uh, among the, the Israelite people. But there, there's a question there. What, what does he mean? How, how, in what sense is he a, a green olive tree? And uh, it's the next line that explains the, the, uh, the imagery here. So the, the, the synonymous line where he says, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. That's what explains the idea of being a green olive tree within the house of God, a fruitful and beautiful tree. When you, when you trust in God's steadfast love, when you trust in his covenant loyalty, that he is going to keep his promises you become someone who is beautiful, someone who bears fruit. Again, someone who is like a green olive tree. Um, so again, sometimes the, uh, if one line is somewhat obscure, the second line can uh, explain it. Um, we looked this morning at Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 is full of synonymous parallelism. You can see this uh, in Psalm 2, beginning in, in verse 1 um, and, and down to verse 3. Um, but notice there, verse 1, why do the nations rage, first line, and the peoples plot in vain? Right? The author is basically saying the same thing twice. You have the nations, you have the peoples, they are synonyms, and they are raging and plotting. Right? Uh, verse 2, 
the kings of the earth set themselves. They've taken a stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying. And then it it gives the explanation there, right? So it's it's basically you've got the the same idea being repeated with with mere uh, synonyms. Um, Psalm 2, verse 4 as well. Um, You can see here it says, um, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And you may ask after that first line, well, how is he laughing? Is he, is it happy laughing, right? He's, he's, uh, you know, it's like it's your birthday and you're happy sort of thing, right? Is that the kind of laughing? Well, no, the second line explains it, right? He's deriding these people. He's mocking them. This is a mocking kind of laughter. Um, so synonymous parallelism, that's how it basically works, right? You got one line that states one thing and then the next line will either state something identical or just give sort of an explanation uh, of, of that first line. Uh, then you also have antithetical parallelism. And this is characterized by two poetic lines that contrast or use antonyms to state the same point from two different perspectives. Um, You see this very frequently in uh, the book of Proverbs. Um, So if you turn with me there for a moment, we'll look at uh, Proverbs chapter 10, an example from 10 and and, and chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 10, and uh, we'll look at verse one. Uh, Notice there it says, a wise son makes a glad father but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Right? You can see where the contrast, the antonyms are. Wise versus foolish, father or mother, glad or sorrow. Right? But there's one basic point that's being made about you know, how, how to be a, a good child, right? a wise child. And uh, you, you, uh, you learn how to do that ba- uh, both from a positive statement and it's negative, right? This is, this is what foolishness results in. Um, uh, further down in verse 24, you got another example. It says there, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. All right, so here's your, your opposites. The wicked versus the righteous. And there are things that the wicked does not want. They, they, they dread this. And there are things that the righteous desire. And what the wicked dread and do not want, that's going to come upon them, right? <laughs> it's going to be the opposite of their desires. And what is given as a gift to the righteous is what they desire. Um, so again, you got e- each of these lines here um, have somewhat of a, of a contrast that's given. And then uh, one other example in um, chapter 11, verse 17. Chapter 11, verse 17 says, A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. Right, so you see the opposites there. You've got the kind man versus the cruel man and the kind man by his conduct is, is 
is going to, to, to benefit himself, right? His, his kindness is going to uh, enjoin some you know, favoritism from others, you know, things like that, good uh, worldly uh, benefits. But if you are cruel, right, you're, you're going to bring harm to yourself. Right? So you've got these, uh, these antonyms that are being used here. Um, another form of parallelism is called synthetic or climactic parallelism, and this is similar, very similar to synonymous parallelism, only the, uh, the following lines, you start with one line and then the following lines add some additional information um, or they, they complete uh, the first thought. Um, so just some examples of this, you don't have to turn here, but in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 51, it says there, he has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Right? So the strength that God has shown is, is then um, further explained um, in the next line, by this work of humbling the proud. Um, or in Psalm 126, verse 1, the first line says, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, and then the next line completes the thought, we were like those who dream. Right, so this is an example of that um, climactic parallelism. You have one line that starts a thought and then another line or subsequent lines that will then complete uh, that thought. And that's just one form of biblical poetry. Um, another form, um, a couple more, is uh, one is called an emblematic parallelism. And this is just where a parallel line makes an explicit analogy. Um, of course, using, uh, usually using you know, some word like uh, like or as. Um, you know, you got examples of this uh, everywhere, but one is in um, Psalm 42, uh, verse 1. As a deer uh, pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Right? He's making an explicit analogy here between a, a deer's actions for, uh, for water and uh, his desire for God. Um, another example, uh, repetitive parallelism. You see this in Psalm 29 and uh, verses 1 and 2. And this is basically where you have a, a statement that um, begins in the, first, uh, in the first line, which is then uh, partially repeated in the second and then carried further in additional lines. So there's just there's a repetition here. So Psalm 29 uh, verse 1 and 2, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Next line, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Next line, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Right? So repetitive, just as it sounds, right? You're going to have the same thing repeated um, over and over. And then uh, one last one is uh, what's called pivot, the pitter, <laughs> pivot pattern parallelism. You can say that three times really fast. You know, see how that pivot pattern? No, it's not going to try. Um, basically, what, what this is, it's similar, it's similar to how books can be structured like a, what's called a chiasm, where you've got um, um, 
maybe you've got like a verse one that says something similar to a verse, I don't know, like a nine, verse nine or something, and then that middle verse, verse four or five, is sort of the main point. In this pivot pattern, within the parallel lines, you have one word or one phrase that is supposed to be read with both lines, okay? So, for example, Psalm 98 and uh, verse 2 and uh, sometimes our um, uh, sometimes our our English texts don't really bring this out all that well. I'll just make a note of it here. Psalm ninety-eight and uh, verses uh, or verse two. Now it says here in the, in the ESV, the Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. Now, in, in, in the Hebrew, um, this, this last phrase here, in the sight of the nations or to the nations, is actually in the middle of these, these first two lines that are stated. And so that it should be read together. So, in other words, you would read it like this. The Lord has made known his salvation to the nations or in the sight of the nations. And in the sight of the nations, he has revealed his righteousness. Right? That, that side of the nations or to the nations is, is in the middle and you've got a pivot right, that takes place. And uh, again, that's one of the, uh, the common um, patterns of, of biblical poetry is that one phrase is going to be attached to uh, multiple lines. So the point is, as we're reading um, through, um, through biblical poetry, you've got to understand that primarily... Um, it, has a, it has a certain form, right? These, these parallel lines are um, going to maybe explain one line that isn't as clear. And so that can be helpful. You know, you're, you're reading through it and you, you read, uh, you know, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of the Lord. Right? What does that mean? The next line is going to be your, ex, your explanation, right? So it's going to help you as, as you interpret some of this, this imagery that you will find um, within poetry. Uh, so you want to look at, you know, what, what, what kind of form am I looking at? Is, is there a contrast that's being provided, right, between the wicked or the righteous or something like that? Um, is, it, uh, is one of these lines elucidating something that is a bit vague? Is there, is there hyperbole that's being used? Uh, so, so, some sort of imagery, um, so, some, uh, again, some, some sort of imagery that uh, just can't make sense. The sun not shining, right? What's the point of that? What's being communicated uh, there? Um, one other thing, I remember um, what, what one helpful thing is that will help you when you come across some metaphor. And it's like, hey, is, is, this, is, this, uh, is this literal or, or is this a, a metaphor? Um, of course, this is something that the, the church has been wrestling with for, for a very long time. But anyways, I, I remember um, Augustine um, in his book on Christian doctrine, he's giving some some uh, instructions for Christians on how they can read and interpret Scripture uh, rightly. And um, one thing he said is that um, if the if the image, uh, if the verse is calling you to do something that's uh, sinful, you know it's a metaphor. <laughs> so well, one example he gave is um, he was he was looking at uh, John chapter six. And, uh, right, Jesus says, uh, you have to eat my flesh. Right? 
Okay. Well, that, that'd be sinful, right? Uh, cannibalism is not okay, right? So there is an image that's being used there. Or uh, the, the, the one we're very familiar with, gouging out your eyes, right? Um, that would be self-mutilation. You don't want to do that, right? So obviously you are looking at um, some sort of a metaphor or hyperbole. Uh, so sometimes, again, when you're reading through poetry and you find all of this sort of dramatic imagery, that's one thing that can be, you know, helpful to ask is like, is, is, is this... Is this image something that just logically makes no sense, right? Um, or is, is there some sort of sin that's being called for? Then obviously, you know, you're looking at uh, some sort of image and not uh, something literal. So again, like I said, um, we'll end here, but the more we get into this, um, when we look at, again, prophecy, um, typology, apocalyptic, all of this is written in poetry. Right, so, so there's going to be overlap here. Um, uh, so um, we'll look at that in more detail. So let me, let me just stop there and uh, see if you guys have any questions that you want to explore further. And uh, if not, we'll close in prayer. Parallel, it's parallelism. All of poetry, all of poetry is parallelism. Uh, trusting in the steadfast, the steadfast love of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I mean, that's that's why the the next line is going to be helpful because what what would. Uh, what, what does the image of the olive tree in the house of the Lord communicate apart from that line? You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? If, if I didn't have the second line, I'm left wondering, what is this image communicating to me? I have a, a green olive tree that, again, in, in the minds of, of the Israelites, and you, you find this in uh, Jeremiah, you find this in Hosea, um, this green olive tree is, is sort of a symbol for um, beauty and fruitfulness, okay? Um, so then the next line, as the, uh, the author says that he's trusting in the steadfast love of the Lord, that's what's making him like this beautiful olive tree, this fruitful olive tree. Um, the, the, the way that he is fruitful. I mean, just, just think about the Christian life, for example. The, the way that we bear good fruit is by trusting in the Lord. You see what I'm saying? So then the, the, the idea there that he's communicating um, is that if you, you trust in the, in the steadfast love of the Lord, you're like a, or he's like a, you know, a green olive tree in the house of God. Um, so again, you know, if, you, if you've got an image in one line, usually, not always, but usually that next line will give some sort of explanation as to what the image is, is communicating. Well, that's, um, it depends on what you mean by necessary, right? I mean, like, can you, uh, can you get the basic message and the, and the gist of things? Well, of course you can, you know. Um, 
It's, it's just a matter of catching all of the nuances. Right? So again, I mean, you look at Psalm 98, verse, verse 2. Right? The Lord has made known his salvation. That's kind of like a, a general statement, and you're wondering, like, to who? How? how? How has this been made known? The next line. He has revealed his righteousness, and then in the sight of the nations. Well, with that, that sort of pivot pattern, what the, what the poetry in the Hebrew is making clear is that in the first line, when he made known his salvation, it's to people, right? It's, it's to the nation. So, you know, it's not like you're going to read that and there's going to be some groundbreaking, you know, earth-shattering revelation that, that has come to you. It's just little nuances, you know. Um, but we're, we're just trying to catch all of the... Uh, as much particulars as we can, you know. Um, now, I think um, those are some of the, uh, the finer details. Um, some of the more complicated matters is when it comes to whether or not you take this or that image literally. Right? That's where a, a lot of the debate tends to be. What sort of image is taken literally and, and figuratively? Um, so again, it's like that Isaiah 13 passage, right? Um, is this a, a literal description of events that took place? There was some cosmic event that happened in the days of the destruction of Babylon, right? Or, or the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, or, right, is this, is this just an image? It's communicating a message of total destruction and devastation. Um, so that's, that's usually where the, uh, uh, the real issues lie. Okay. Well, let's uh, close with a word of prayer then. Father, again, we thank you for your word, your testimonies are true. They give us life. They instruct us in your ways. It is bread from heaven. And Lord, we desire to eat it, to savor it, to grow in our knowledge of it and through our knowledge of the word, our knowledge of you. And so, Lord, just help us as we read, as we study, as we hear the preaching of your word. Help us to know you more through your word. Help us to be faithful to it that we would not fall into any errors, that you would keep us pure. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's uh, stand and we'll close.